just to recognize that it never really ends. There's a whole mass of questions that uh, I haven't answered. And um, that's I feel okay with that. <laughs> because it is an ongoing inquiry. And uh, I hope I'm trying to just present the Buddha's teachings so that your citta becomes strong enough and wise enough to deal with your issues, your topics. You're the one who can solve it out. Essentially, it says uh, you're steadying, but keeping these faculties in mind. You know, virya, sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. Keeping those in mind. Finding balance. Where does the mind jitter come forth? When does it bring forth good qualities? When is it capable of bringing forth good qualities? And, um, you know, setting up the conditions for these good qualities to arise. That sounds vague, but it's also universal. It means whatever you're doing, wherever you are, working with people, going home, in a difficult situation, sick, meditating, whatever you're doing, you can bear this in mind. You set up the conditions for the jitter to do the best it can. And this is about knowing how to withdraw and what needs to be withdrawn is not, not energy, not faith, not mindfulness. <laughs> you don't withdraw these. We withdraw the unskillful entanglements with things. And then we bring forth. So it's trying to encourage you bring forth your energy and your mindfulness. So it's not an endless withdrawal, but withdrawal of what's unskillful and bringing forth the skillful. And simple things to bear in mind, like sometimes I just use this um, reminder, it's used to have uh, slogans, phrases, and the reminder is just, it's like this now. Again, that's kind of vague, but it covers everything. (laughs) Because whatever it is, it's like this now. So that gives us a, that's the, that's the withdrawal, that's the dispassion, it's like this now. It's busy, it's hot, it's this, it's that, it's uncertain, it's confusing, it's happy, it's, and what we recognize with it's like this now is there's always something, there's a characteristic called dukkha, incomplete, all the questions unanswered, the mind still feels it needs something else, the time was too short, or too long, or, yeah, and so on. You know, too many people, not enough people, so forth. Routine wasn't the way I liked it. Routine, some good, some bad, so forth. It's like this now. It's this quality of characteristic of dukkha. This is the way, way it is. You know, the, the conditioned phenomenal world of sensations, situations, circumstances, peoples, events, bodies, are like this now. They have this characteristic. There's a difference between dukkha as a characteristic and dukkha as a noble truth. <laughs> dukkha is a characteristic. As a truth, the noble truth is when I grasp that, <laughs> then suffering occurs. So I grasp it, I get I want it to be something, I resist it, I blame it. I feel oppressed by it, I identify with it. 
This is my mind, this is my place, this is my so on. This is identification. Feels like it's happening to me. And so this is when it becomes suffering. Not just unsatisfactoriness or incompleteness, but suffering. And it's really to, to withdraw from that. Most of our practice is about not to ask the conditions or the circumstances to be more than they can be. No? So just, you know, this is universal truth to conditioned existence. Wherever you go, it's like this now. And it's got this quality of, after a while, yeah, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it's extremely unsatisfactory. But it's like this now. And this little phrase just helps to lift back from the tangling with it. And we begin to find, and one of the results of meditation, and people ask me, how do you know meditation is progressing? This is one way you know it's progressing. We need to experience difficult situations, difficult circumstances, unpleasant emotions, bad health, and not find yourself oppressed by it. This is number one, you know. Because then it's really working, it's integrating. And we begin to recognize as we find that that position that, you know, the real problem actually that can be solved is this sense of the me that it happens to. You know, most of our attention goes on to the things that happen to me and trying to make them, you know, as best as possible. Well, that's reasonable. And you, we do the best we can, or we do what we can. And the best as possible is to keep the precepts, to practice good conduct, to cultivate skillful karma, to associate with wise people. That's the tops. That's the best possible. <laughs> and still, you know, there's something unfinished, incomplete, not satisfactory. It's like this now. And we begin to, within that basis, it's not the situations or the people, it's just this this me sense that comes up in the chitta. My style, my views, my needs, my attitudes, my culture, my background, my whatever, you know, that, that comes up. And that's not necessary. You want to wean yourself of that. I mean, certainly it takes a little time to do that, but you want to see if you can gradually release some of that, it may have been relevant at some time, but you want to grow out of these things. So you become more open. And you have a constancy then. Your practice doesn't waver because you've got a constant constancy to it. Whatever's going on. You you don't let your mind get oppressed by dukkha. Now this is is, this is what the Four Noble Truths are about. This is really the pinnacle of spiritual training. Uh, consider meditation and calming as a kind of a facet of spiritual training. You know, that which does help us to clear the mind enough to really get to the point of noticing the body is, well, it is painful. It needs propping up constantly, feeding, cleaning, bathing. It's like that. That's not its fault. It's just, it's a, it's a limited condition, you know. 
thinking is like this, it goes so far and then it splutters and it always needs some new idea to try and fill in the gaps it can't fill in because it doesn't fill it in. You can't think it through. You can't... Logic and thought only covers a small portion of experience. The rest of it you've got to rely on something else. So the, the, the things that we tend to identify with are themselves actually very limited and they constantly need propping up. So we don't want to make our opinions, our views, our ideas something that's so precious and special because they won't they'll let you down. Well, one of the teachings in the suttas is of the five kanda, the five aggregates, perceptions, form, bodily form, any form at all, and uh, feeling. And these sankharas are patterns of thought, our patterns of emotion, these kind of things that become habitual assumptions and attitudes. And the, the, the teaching is, is, well, you know, first of all, these come along and they say, oh, we'll, we'll make life comfortable for you. We'll make life comfortable for you. Here's a nice feeling. Here's a, here's a nice body, you know. You can make it comfortable. You can tan it and tone it and so forth. Uh, and uh, <laughs> here's some nice perceptions, things you feel comforted, comforted by. And you, you take them in. Yeah. And here's some nice ideas, you take them in. And he said, this is like five assassins. They turn up at the door, all nicely dressed. And you say, oh, come in. <laughs> they work away, they get firmly established over years and years. Then they start stabbing you. <laughs> the body stabs you. <laughs> ideas and attitudes stab you. Feelings stab you. <laughs> So, <laughs> but he says you can train them so they don't stab you. The way you train them is you, d- you don't identify with them and you learn how to, to resist their, their cries and, and clamor. You know? Body, of course, we do the best we can with, but our minds create most of the problem. What I want, what I don't want. And so we contemplate, you know, whatever it is, it's like this now. And actually this experience of the of the formations of the mind as we've been chanting sankara formations it's not self it seems like me because it's been there a long time and it says similar things in the same kind of voice so it must be me <laughs> until you say well um you know if you're mine could you just please take a rest it won't obey you. If you're mine, could you say something pleasant? And it won't obey you. Could you give me an answer? And it won't obey you. You realize, well, it's not. It's not doing what I want it to do. <laughs> so then we start to become more, uh, less intimidated. What do our minds throw up? Now, there are different. You know, we need a lot of resources for this. Because this, this is deep stuff. This is the Four Noble Truths. This is the, the real testing. And spiritual training means you, you take that, you take some of this understanding, it's like this now, you take that into your life. 
people arise in your mind, they're like this now. It feels like this now. Are you going to suffer with this? And you develop what are called parami. So I was saying earlier, and I've touched on briefly, we all need structure. You know, the structure here, situation. But the, the structure you take along, you know, the, the bigger you have the vinya structure, a lot of that structure, really what it comes down to, is developing qualities of giving. You know, the bigger you learn to give, you don't have really money, so you give your service, you offer your time, you give your service to the somebody you give. That is, that's fundamental. And you see how you can give, and what you can give. You develop, uh, so this is a parami. And material things, yeah, they're useful, they're handy. The most important thing is to develop this giving heart, and serving, and supporting, and encouraging. And this is where you start to generate the field of Kalyanamitta, spiritual friends. And the Buddha said there's two there's four indispensable things that you need if you want to if you want to realize awakening even to a to a minor degree. You need to hear the true Dhamma, you need to practice the true Dhamma, you need to have deep attention, and you need spiritual friends, spiritual companions. These are indispensable. Now it's the where do you get the true Dharma from? Spiritual friends. How do you practice it? With your wise attention. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, uh, the spiritual friends, spiritual companions, means we have to take on and open to and work with other people. And uh, in Sangha life, this is this is the big topic. You know, working in communities. Communities are difficult uh, because people have their good side and they have their defilements and their weaknesses. You take that on and recognize it's like this now. So-and-so has turned up late. He didn't do his chores today. It's like this now. Why does she never do what I ask her to do? It's like this now. So you're just finding that sense of, of understanding and then you can find yourself complaining, but you think, well, what can I do? I can bring forth the good. And that's my possibility. This is where I generate my strength. And most of us, certainly in this uh, tradition, we have to develop that dana generosity a lot in terms of offering service. So, you know, I not really don't want to be bragging, but I've set up, helped to set up or set up four monasteries. And this doesn't mean you walk into some nice apartment and switch the lights on. It means you come to some grubby old wreck of a place because that was all we could afford to buy and you work. (laughs) And uh, you work with your mind. Say, well, look, you know, say, well, you know, the roof's broken. Well, you fix it. <laughs> you know, the place is on time. You clean it up. And uh, <laughs> and it shouldn't be like this, should it? And the, when we went to Chitta, so that was all the, it was a ruin. 
that's how we got it, the Chittas Monastery, the first monastery I was with, uh, set up, or helped set up. And the floors were rotten, the roof was rotten, the rain used to come in, six of us in a room, the rain pouring through the ceiling, we had buckets by our beds to try to try to sleep in between where the rain fell. <laughs> there were little patches where the roof was had enough in it to stop the rain, and you've got buckets around your bed catching the rain. And, and okay, here we go. You're not lying there for the sake of indulgence, that's for sure. You, you know. And uh, the no electricity went. There was no kitchen. There was uh, one shower, and uh, there was kind of men's night and women's night for the shower. And you would try to make sure you knew which night it was, and that was a. <laughs> <laughs> so it was grubby and hard and workful and a lot of work, and it was extremely joyful. Because everybody just got together, and uh, it's like this now. What are you going to do about it? Huh? <laughs> so it doesn't look like meditation, <laughs> but actually, in terms of you know working with the, the me sense, and he says, "Well, it, you bring it forth. You you bring forth me as not someone who wants a lot, but someone who gives a lot." And it was very joyful time. And it was also, it's funny, it's a mixture of joyful and, and really uncomfortable. And that's, that's the strange thing about <laughs> spiritual training. You know, you've sat here on bed, it's been uncomfortable <laughs> at times. And, you know, if you really look at that and work with that and face up to it, it's bound to be uncomfortable. There's nothing wrong. And you're, everybody's in discomfort. They just come with their minds, they come with their bodies, confused, agitated, everybody's in We're in this together. And then you get a sense of camaraderie. We are now spiritual companions because we've been initiated into this process of handling suffering, of not letting unsatisfactory circumstances make us quail, quiver, run away. You know, we become, we get strong. And you form strong bonds, even with people we didn't particularly like. You know, when you get a, a, a load, a bunch of monks that are often from all kinds of different countries and different characters, not necessarily people you'd have associated with. And you learn to see the good in each other and respect each other. And it creates an incredibly strong bond. Because it's not really based upon, you know, something superficial, but based upon a person's parami. And you respect that. So this is spiritual training. I mean, just as we were getting chitta sort of halfway reasonable, I sent to this other place, which is even worse. <laughs> it's in Northumberland, which is freezing cold. And uh, it was an old shepherd's cottage, which had no no heat. There was one fireplace, but there was no fuel. to, f- And there was one cold water tap. No hot water at all, just one tap that had that you could get cold water out but there's no drains so if you want to wash yourself you had to stand in a basin and splash this cold water over yourself and then throw the water out they sort of managed it they got a toilet put in first at first there was no toilet it was kind of an earth closet out back yeah and the the theme was we had to take off all the old plaster of the walls in order to put a damp course in which is a kind of you, you drill into the walls and you eject it so this means that the damp which is a constant problem in England 
it, it blocks the damp from coming up from the ground. So that's the idea. So you have to knock all the plaster off the wall and inject the walls with this silicon so that it become, they become damp-proof. But we knock the plaster off the walls, you know, there's holes in the walls, and the wind would come through the wall because there were these little gaps in the wall between these stones. And in wintertime, it's snow. So the snow would come in because the door didn't, didn't actually reach the floor. The door stopped, you know, like 15 centimeters off the floor, 20, and the snow would come in under the door and land in the, in the, in the room. <laughs> Where they put the toilet it had a couple of windows. There's no glass in the windows. So the snow would come in into the, and you have to wipe the snow off the toilet before you could use it. And so we used to, we got a wood-burning stove, but nobody knew how to fix, put in. So we just put it in the fireplace, and we'd sit around pretending it was warm. <laughs> we'd say, oh, it's really warm today, isn't it? And you put your hands out, this is kind of stove with nothing in it. And you say, oh, it's getting really warm, isn't it? Yeah, having a good time. we pretend. <laughs> and we'd cheer each other up like that. <laughs> so it gives you a sense of kind of bonding. <laughs> And uh, we had to drill all these holes, drilled 700 holes in the wall, all this deep. With a, and the wall was made of granite, which is a very hard rock, so it took a lot of work to drill one hole, let alone 700 of them. And I, I, that's my, that was my job, I was drilling away every day to drill. And uh, then there was, I think, once a week, someone would turn up with some dana. They bring Dana. There was a, a lay, an anagarika, that's a postulant living with us, and he would keep the food, and they would they would offer, they would offer it every day, and once a week or so, somebody would turn up and take the washing and wash it, and I think once a, once a month we'd go into the main town, we could get a bath, a warm shower, <laughs> and that was that, you know, so, and yet. It was miserable, and it was also joyful. And it's strangely peaceful, because your mind stopped resisting it, it just becomes funny. <laughs> it just became kind of so funny. Uh, sit around a stove saying, oh, it's really warm. <laughs> uh, but you, you know, instead of letting the jitter collapse, you bring it forth. And you th- always that feeling it comes up when I'm building this so that people in the future can benefit from it. Because that's what happens. As I just started to get these things done, then I, I had taken somewhere else. So somebody else came along and did that. So you're just setting things up for, for future generations. You look far, you look near. You look near into your own chitta. It's like this. What are you going to do about it? You also look around and say, well, are we going to fall out with each other and complain, or are we going to get together? Are we going to find differences of opinion, or are we going to cooperate? You look, look at that, and you cooperate. And uh, then you realize, hey, I've got a lot more strength than I realized. The jitter is not so feeble, after all. And this is not just my experience. Uh, John Kalyana will be here uh, soon. I mean, he has spent years nursing Ajahn Chah. And that means not only learn the language, learn medical skills, learn nursing skills. And they had a round-the-clock, 24-hour-a-day vigil on Ajahn Chah for 10 years. 
teams of people and he was the one who was coordinating it organizing nursing learning Thai you know everybody want having an idea about how you should look after Ajahn Chah naturally so and just keeping calm in the center of that and that went on for years and no regret you know because you you've come through you did what was good there was difficulty you persisted in what was good you kept your cool and you didn't let circumstances oppress you and this way you develop spiritual friends and you, you learn how to handle your mind same thing when I went to Amrawadi a very chaotic situation um, again no heat heat got switched off we used to go to uh, sleeping bags with all their clothes on and put your hat on to go to bed <laughs> try and keep warm because it was, it was below zero in the Vihara like 5, 10 degrees below in your, in your bedroom <laughs> so you know this is like this now shower you go into a shower freezing cold water you just kind of wet a sponge and rub it over your body as quick as you can throw some water over yourself and jump out <laughs> certainly didn't indulge in that one and chaotic people there's lots of people coming and often people who come to monasteries are not necessarily balanced you know they're a bit chaotic a bit stressed out or confused or irritable or sometimes they're a bit slightly mad <laughs> and you've got to kind of receive it all and you think oh, I want a tranquil monastery until that stops and I made a vow one year that I, that in, in for trying to make these determinations and I made a vow for one year for this three month rains period which is the period that just not, not to let my mind complain at all not just not to speak but not to even let my mind complain and this meant it was really you know I'd get these people coming in it was crazy and this person was crazy <laughs> and this didn't work and that and I just can't complain so you just patience you know, let's do it this way and we do it like this and I don't think this is really suitable behavior and please do it like you know <laughs> and the next day you do the same thing and it's like that you know and as generally it's quite noisy they had the, the kitchen was was the meditation hall it was an old it was an old dining hall so the kitchen emptied into the meditation hall you know and there was no it was a hatch, you know, a big serving hatch. So everything went on in the kitchen. You see them meditating. It's chop, chop, bang, bang. <laughs> and they had a, uh, a spin dryer. So you'd hear the spin dryer going, wang, 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 wang. <laughs> if somebody's washing their clothes, there's a note saying, please don't wash your clothes between this time and that time. Of course, somebody's decided they want to wash their clothes at this and you can't complain. <laughs> and uh, after... Th- Practicing like this for two or three three months, just stopping that. The amazing thing was, I felt this incredible love for everybody. Just recognizing, you know, we're all in this mass of suffering together. What else can you do? What else can you You can't make people right. You can't make them this. You can't make them that, you know. 
as rough and smooth, what can you do? What can you bring forth? You end up just this quality of metta karuna comes forth. And it's such a relief. You know, when the chitta finally gets that bit, it has the capacity for loving kindness and compassion and nothing need take that away. And it feels really good when you've got past this irritability. And you have to often push it, push yourself against it. Uh, and hold it there and stay and stay and stay until the jitter uh, it, it shifts you know and when it shifts it suddenly brings forth these beautiful qualities that you didn't think you had and so this is the theme you know it's really interesting this is the four noble truths in, in anecdotal form what is, there is dukkha there's, there's identifying with life, mine, me, my monastery, my practice, my samatha, my vipassana, how I'm going to get it going, what my, my life's going to be about, this is my time, don't bother me. Um, <laughs> and this is the, you know, what it takes to let go of that. Yeah, and sometimes it's in this refined area of meditation, yeah. But, but for most of us, I think for all of us, actually, this meditation bit is an essential portion, that's all. And we have to look at it in terms of the large context of spiritual training to cultivate the lessening of the I am and deliberately holding your chitta so that it it doesn't do that. It starts to cultivate the we sense. How can I cooperate, share, how can I think of the welfare of others? How can I think of the long-term welfare of people in the future who come? And certainly, you know, life as, as an abbot is like that. You know, I didn't want to be an abbot. I don't want to take responsibility. I want to just, why should I have to do this? You know, these people come here, they all got problems. Why doesn't somebody think about me for a change? <laughs> You know, they've got problems and so, 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 you know. And I don't want these people coming. Do you, like, do you like that voice? Don't be such a selfish pig. <laughs> you know, that, that, is that gonna, where does that go? You know, that, that, get off my planet, will you? And, you know, a sense of, okay, bring it on. And let's, let's see what this jitta does. It's, you know, my jitta is a stubborn, unruly jitta. It's, it's, you know, it's wild, or it has been wild. Uh, it wants to go its own way. And so you have to sort of hold it and stop it doing that. And then it, it's like uh, you tame the elephant, the wild elephant. And when the elephant is strong and tamed, then you've got something that's going to take you past aging, sickness and death. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are things to, to contemplate when you, you know, you have your responsibilities. I have my responsibilities. And we can, we can feel them as burdens and they can be burdens. But if you're going to do it, if you're going to commit to it, then you've got to say, okay, I'm in this. 
then I've got to rise up to it. I've got to take what it what it gives me. I've got to take the lessons it teaches me. I've got to work with the suffering it brings me. You know? Rather than say, well, I want to do this. I, no, no, you, this, is what, this is where it is. You're this now. You're in this now. You rise up to it. And, uh, you know, get beyond. So I remember during this difficult period at Amrawadi, even Ajahn Sumedho said, well, you know, you've worked so hard. Um, uh, you know, you, why don't you like to give you a break to, to go some, go to a, this little quiet place for a while? I said, I like it here. <laughs> it's doing me good. Because <laughs> I, I, I knew, I got a sense of getting the point of it, of training myself to have you know, to develop this parami, determination, aditana. Really, perhaps, all the parami, you know, dana, sila, morality, renunciation, uh, energy, patience, uh, wisdom, truthfulness, kindness, equanimity, resolution, you know, I think that's it, ten. Every one of them is doubled, trebled by resolution. And every one of them becomes weak without it. So resolution generally means at a certain point you don't want to do it anymore. Then that's when the resolution comes in. Then that's when the res- that's when you get your testing. Resolution comes in. And you can do it. I don't want to do it, but I can do it. Like I think I was trying to figure out when how long should I do walking meditation for? And generally I've worked on this principle. I do it until I get to the point when I don't want to do it. And when I get to that point, I do it some more until the mind gives up. <laughs> so you're waiting for that thing to come in and then you go a little bit beyond it, extend beyond it. It's a good way of developing practice. You know, I sit until I don't want to sit and then I sit some more. Because it's this meeting, this wave of resistance and just pushing against it and coming over it, there's where your development is. So look at it also like this, not just in terms of refinement, but in terms of developing these strengths. Because my assessment is that when you develop these these resolutions and strengths and parami, then the chitta has to come forth. And as it comes forth, it begins to bring forth its skillfulness. So you find when you sit and meditate, oh, it's gone quiet without any without any great effort. It's gone quiet because the, the jitta has become obedient and uh, malleable and soft and pliable and stopped being so querulous. Yeah. And you sit. Well, there's one of the monks he was saying when he had to work in a monastery in Kanchanaburi, and there they were, I think they were building a dam. <laughs> Three of them working on this, I think it was a dam, so, to block some water so the monastery had a reservoir. And the monks do it themselves, you know. They haven't got any money to fund anything, so they do it themselves. They work. Kanchanaburi is on the Burmese border, so it's really sweaty and hot. And they had to work all day in this sweaty heat uh, on this 
<laughs> none, none of them were, they weren't civil engineers. <laughs> and he's going, and he kept at it. And he thought, oh, this is really bad for my practice. And he said, the most amazing thing is, I, I, you know, I got to the end of the day, this whole rush of joy came up. Because you've met the suffering mind and you've constantly pushed it down until it, it's, it's given up. And then the nature of, of the trained mind, it naturally is joyful. If you, it naturally is joyful and bright and strong. And so these are what we call, the, like these are the Dutangas, or the spirit of Dutanga. It means testing yourself, pushing yourself. Now in lay life, you know, you look at it like this, you need structures. And generally your structures should be, who do you live with? Who do you work with? Who do you cooperate with? And we can look at this in a number of ways. It's your business, but also the really important ones are going to be the people you, you practice Dhamma with, your people you share Dhamma with. Um, places that offer Dhamma. You should look at these as this is your ground for Kalyanamita. Now that's a fertile ground to cultivate. This is where you're going to meet good people. And it means in those situations, this is where you start to offer service, work, help, put up with difficulties, um, because it's going to make you strong. If they're with people you can't trust, have no confidence in, you don't feel comfortable with, don't go there, you know. If people you think are good people, worthy of trust, then it's something you want to find you can bring yourself into as a spiritual training. And that's how monasteries grow like that, out of nothing really, out of crumbling ruins and abandoned places. And hopefully this is how centers like this can thrive. You know, it's all voluntary stuff. And often I... You know, I say, the main thing I say about, certainly about monasteries, is this, we're all volunteers. We're all amateurs. Amateur means you love it. We're all volunteers. And it's not just the fact that they don't get paid, but what the volunteer heart does, it rises up. I don't know, but I'll try. I'm not very good at it, but at least I'll have a go. <laughs> it does that. <laughs> because this is its joy. This is its, its willingness, you know, and we've kind of, in our developed world, we've tended to believe that experts and professionals, who I phone up and they come and do it for me. And that's the case with a lot of things. But then what happens is we, we feel we can't do anything. And wherever there's a possibility to experience this sense of, I don't really know, but I'll try, work it out with my companions, then there's this lovely feeling of allowing the heart to rise with joy. So I hope you have spiritual friends. And if you've sensed, this is because this is a requirement. When you say the, the, you know, the four requirements, listening to two drama, practicing accordance with dhamma, deep attention, spiritual friends, right? These are the four requirements. So there's nothing that specially refined about aspects of techniques of meditation. Just broad, understandable, universal, true Dhamma, and there's varieties on that. Don't get lost in the details. Spiritual friends, some are jolly, some are not so jolly, some talk a lot, some don't say much. Don't get lost in the details. Is this person reliable? Do they model virtues? Do you feel trust in them? Right? <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs>
And if you find that, then you found something precious. Because one of the most, one of the things that is really lacking in our world, in our society, I don't know Malaysia that much, but my guess is community. You know, uh, cooperation and community. Because, of course, people rub up against each other, and generally people want to be independent. And we are kind of seduced into that. But when we operate on our own, we're, not, we're weak compared with when we group together. So it's like, you know, how do human beings get to be a successful species? Because they're brainy? Yeah. But because you see even like in monkeys and baboons, when a predator comes, they group together. And they're all throwing rocks at this thing. You know? One monkey or baboon against a leopard, finished. Ten monkeys against the leopard, the leopard runs away. Because <laughs> one of them is pulling his tail, one is throwing a rock, one's biting his ear. Leopard, oh, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and we are descendants of those creatures. <laughs> yeah, so when we get together, we, we become strong. This is the spirit of the good friend, the Kalyanamita. And the Buddha, you know, once specified the good friend. What is the good friend? He says, seven qualities. They give what's hard to give. They give what's hard to give. They give you a little more time, a little more attention, a little more support. They give a little bit more. They walk an extra mile for you. They endure what's hard to endure for your sake. They bear with the discomforts or the problems. What did our parents do? Do you think we were nice and quiet and tidy and clean and obedient when we were two years old, screaming and hollering, <laughs> making a mess. Now they, they bore with it. And, you know, why do we carry that? Remember, we, this is the good friend, somebody endures for your sake. There's someone who is, um, reveals their heart to you, tells you honestly what's happening, reveals their confidences, and someone who doesn't betray you, doesn't gossip about you. Two more qualities. There's someone who, when you when you make a mistake, they don't despise you. And when you completely lose it and down and out, they don't give up on you. <laughs> you know, there's a tremendous strength required in that and a tremendous aim. Where are you going to find good people? You're going to find good people when you become a good person. Then you learn to love them. This is training. This is opening the chitta. This is bringing it forth. This is going beyond who we think we are, our limitations. And it's beautiful. So, you know, certainly in monastery, we, Chittaviveka, we, we don't put a gate so anybody can come in. We don't have a gate. We don't lock the door. The house is not locked. You can walk into the house. The Dhamma Hall, there's no lock on it. Anytime, day or night, anybody can come in, <laughs> walk in and sit down. And naturally, sometimes, occasionally, people spoil it or take steal things, or uh, and you take that because you think, well, yeah. But for the sake of others, we'll just bear with that. Even if one percent, two percent misuse it, still, it's better to accept that than to try to hold it all, protect it all. <laughs> And start saying no, you know, no, 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 no. We don't, you know, gates, fences, and so forth, because it's got a sanctuary to it. 
and uh, we we gather together to 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 have that kind of agreement and support. It's it's a training because naturally you you think well why do people do this why do they so why do people run into the monastery and throw rocks at the Buddha image why are people you know so stupid and why do they steal things from our <laughs> garage and so on <laughs> so you end up knocking up you know your valuables or whatever but you always keep a place open so that somebody in the middle of the night when they have a difficult time can come in and sit down and from you know, a local town or a village can find somewhere where it's free, open, and they can just be there. And you accept the, the limitation, you accept what it costs to do that. And you feel pleased. So this is the turning, you know, turning around. Your mind turns around, being, being that which wants to, feels it needs to pull things in feels it needs to have things to something that realizes it can give and it can offer and it can has its strengths and we need to know that about ourselves spiritual training is like that you have kids that's going to be a workout but you can't say should be quiet so as i can meditate (laughs) if you want to do that don't have kids So within this, we start to realize that there's a whole eightfold path of practice. Right? View causes and conditions. It means what good I do will inevitably be for my welfare. It cannot be other than for my welfare. Every moment of a skillful thought, every gesture of a kind deed, every quality of goodness or persistence or patience, it cannot not bear good fruit and one first of all has faith in it and eventually one convinced of it i'm convinced of this you know considering now i set myself so incredibly grateful you know to have experienced some of the some taste of the fruits of of dhamma practice and you know where was i 50 years ago whatever you know i'm a punk kid <laughs> running around doing crazy things. <laughs> so it's, uh, you start, to, you realize this it doesn't happen immediately, but it does if you persist with it. It cannot help but bring forth good fruit. And meditation becomes a time when you, you take in and you remember and you feel the quality of the, of the fruit, of the seeds that you planted and the, how the fruit ripens. So right view. Now it means nobody can take should nobody can take that away from you. Nothing, no situation in the world can take that away from you. That understanding away from you. It's not a belief. It's a, a realization that you come to by yourself through doing the field work. Right attitude, attitude which is void of harshness, violence, cruelty, and aims to relinquish. So you do that. You have a. a Again, a very reliable field of, of action. What we do in our lives from one word to our lifestyle. Is it doing this? Are we acting in violent ways, dismissive ways, contemptuous ways, despicable ways, rejecting people? Do we learn to let go a little bit? Right? Speech. Do we say things that are useful, profitable, worth remembering, 
or do we just babble? <laughs> yeah. So this is called a treasure because what you say affects what you think and what you think, you know, it sits there. It comes back to your own chitta. So there's a very direct relationship between what we say, what we think and it ends up landing in your own chitta. So right speech, right action, precepts, right livelihood. Difficult one, right livelihood, in many ways, but we should consider livelihood as being a little more than just material support. Material support is part of it, definitely. But the more that you can have some say over material support, that is you don't take or need more than you need, then you've got some le- leverage some on what the, what the world demands. You can feel you, you can um, not have to do things you find are unwholesome just for the sake of requisites. Keep your life simple. And you think really what the things that keep me alive are sila, virtue, <laughs> generosity, you know, truthfulness, kindness. Those are the things that, that's what my life is really about. This rest is just stuff, isn't it? But what is life for? You know, what are we alive for? <laughs> Look at the big picture, what are we alive for? Isn't it this human condition being born in a body and so on and that lasts so many years and fades out? And what are we alive for? You know? Suddenly makes the profession seem a little bit irrelevant, doesn't it? We're alive to be fully alive, to be fully human, and that's a matter of chitta. So we cultivate livelihood, but remember, really what keeps us alive is having a sense of meaning, respect, self-respect, and a feeling of we're doing something skillful. So we should look out for possibilities to, you know. And we have the, say, the person who typesets all our has typeset many of our books beautifully. Typeset. He he said he you know he has he's a professional designer, and he's you know he's he's a one man company. He does all his own work himself, and uh, but all the stuff he does for us he does absolutely free, and he doesn't stint. He doesn't you know he's not skimp on design. He takes it to to the best he possibly can. He says this is my real work. The rest of it is just making money. Just make enough money so I can do the real work. <laughs> this is a person who's got his eye on livelihood. Right livelihood, right effort. Right effort's about what we refrain from, you know, unskillful company. Just looking at refraining from, just withdrawing from. What do we withdraw from? And even look at it as not unskillful, just unprofitable, doesn't, not unnecessary, doesn't do any good, doesn't bring forth my virtues, just wasting time. Look at it like that. And this is your up for each of us to, to work out for ourselves. It's not a, this isn't Sunday school, you know, moral training, but really to look at, you know, am I doing, is my efforts being applied to things that are going to bring forth benefits to myself or others? long-term, short-term, or is it just passing the time? Better to, to withdraw from that and meditate. You know, switch things off. As I was saying, you know, like learning and uh, structuring life where you're determined to switch off your gadgets. And tell everybody, you know, Sundays I don't do that stuff. 
because it will eat up all your time absolutely so this to withdraw and to bring forth effort to what is skillful and to sustain that these this is this sustain those qualities so this is definition of right effort and you look at that first in terms of your lifestyle and if it comes a a constant wisdom faculty that you're constantly checking mm-hmm. it's useful, valuable, helpful, not helpful, not profitable, profit. Useful to say this, not useful, forget it. So that there's all that requires wisdom. Right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness. Being able to frame up and in meditation or when we come to sit still or just moving around even you see the satipatthana says you when you're walking you know you're walking you're aware of that this is what walking's like this is what going to work's like this is what being in a traffic jam's like okay it's like this now so this is not an exceptionally in itself not an exceptionally refined technique although naturally you can do refined techniques it doesn't rule out but you look into your daily life and you want to have something that you that's portable for daily life situations. So mindfulness is it's like this now. Being in a traffic jam, wanting to get home in a hurry, but it's like this now. Therefore, it's like this now. <laughs> End of story. You know, we sit. Body's here, you're still sitting. You're breathing, so you're home already. <laughs> you know, you just keep adjusting to make the foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha said, this is your home, because nobody can evict you from that home. Right? It's not going to fall down. The other ones we rent or build or move into, but this one is your real home. These places where you establish sati. Sati gives you a home. Mindfulness gives you a home. Samadhi unification means what we're with, we bring our mind to steadiness on that. We unify our mind on that. And the mind acquires strength through that. And from this we get insight because we begin to see as we unify what we're doing, we begin to see you know, the, the, the mind's distractions, the defilements, and we can clear it. We begin to see what we're, what we're doing is just something else that's subject to change. It's not something we're expecting to make, you know, anything me out of. We're not looking what we're doing to give us status or renown, be praised. We're just doing what we're doing because this is what's happening now. So we're with it. And the mind then is unified. It's not asking for results. It's not seeking praise from others, we just do it because it's like this now. <laughs> that's that's the definition of samadhi. It's called the four foundations are the defining characteristic of samadhi. The nimittas, the foundations. So you establish that and you, you live with that. And it's actually that is that's workable. doesn't mean you're always going to enter samadhi, but you begin to understand the the way the hindrances or the obstructions, what they are, and what they, what they, how you can release them, so that when you find some quiet time, 
you sit and those hindrances that you've worked on or they've been challenged and pushed aside and you you find you enter meditation much more easily this way so this is eightfold path and it's um, a way of life it's a training and it's, it's what the buddhas bring forth and only buddhas bring it forth so we're really blessed I feel very blessed to uh, personally to have heard, to have listened, to at least have attempted it and had such support and guidance and encouragement and patience from friends, spiritual trainers, teachers, lay people, you know. When I think of where I was born, North London, you know, my my, my grandfather was, used to deliver coal on the back of a horse and cart. <laughs> What's that good? You know, and somehow or another, through cause and effect conditions, I found my way into this, and I placed my feet in the tracks of the Buddha. I can't tell you just how immeasurably touched and joyful I am about just even having put my feet in the Buddha's footprints. Think nothing, you know, it brings tears to my eyes. And we recognize just how many people get the chance to do that, have that. So we're fortunate. And uh, it's, a, it's a fortune that we should not take lightly. It's certainly because we have all done some good deeds. We all have enough good karma and parami, otherwise we wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be on this retreat. You wouldn't have listened. You wouldn't have struggled. If you didn't have the virtues and the strength to do what it takes, you wouldn't be here. And maybe you're thinking, mine, I'm confused, I can't do this. Don't get lost in that one. You can do it. It just takes time <laughs> and patience and persistence. And, you know, there's no point about saying, you know, how long did it take to get enlightened? What's the quick way? That's the slow way to do it. <laughs> the quick way to do it is, this is working on the places I need to work on. I trust it. I keep going. That's it, you know. And if we learn anything from this retreat, all I ever asked at the end of the retreat is if I feel if you've had enough to make you think this is worthwhile doing some more, I'm very satisfied. <laughs> you know. So, animal dana to one and all, and. Uh, uh, thank you for your 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 very uh, full attention and cooperation, each and every one of you. Thank you.